0: with prayer. It's good to see all you hearty Minnesotans here. We'll, uh, we'll open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather together here in freedom to learn about your word. We pray, Lord, that as we look at Revelation chapter 14, you would help us to understand the significance of belonging to the Lamb and how he enables us all to stand on the last day. Lord, uh, we pray also for our brothers and sisters who are sick, uh, our brothers and sisters around the world, We uh, pray for good fellowship for them, for protection. Most of all, that all of us would grow in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as you can see, we're in Revelation chapter 14. And what I'm going to be showing you here today in verses 1 through 5 is a section that is a proleptic look at the Millennial Kingdom. And what that means is Revelation 14, the first five verses, is really a summary snapshot of what will occur in the millennium when Jesus Christ returns and reigns. Now, there are three sections in Revelation 14. The first five verses have to do with what I said just a moment ago, the millennial kingdom. The verses 6 through 13 has to do with climactic judgments that are going to occur within the 70th week of Daniel, that is within the last seven years. In verses 14 through 20, there's a summary of a harvest-like judgment Which background is Joel 3, where all the nations surround Jerusalem? That's a summary of Revelation chapters 15 through 20. Okay, now each of these three sections is delineated by John using chi idon in Greek, which is, and I saw. So chapter 14, three times you will see, and I saw, there's a vision. He says it again, and I saw, there's a vision. He says, and I saw, and there's a vision. Now, in total, what chapter 14 really does is it shows us a tremendous contrast with what we had witnessed in Revelation 13, namely the victories of the beast. Here we're going to see the ultimate victory of the Lamb and his people. And this contrast is necessary so that we realize even though the beast, that is the Antichrist, will have temporary victories over the earth, They're only temporary. And at the end of the day, Christ and his people win. And so that's why I think John places it here. It's very interesting to note, every time you see the beast activity in the book of Revelation, his doom is soon pronounced shortly thereafter. And so we see the same thing. Now, one thing that I think comes up when we look at the 144,000 is there are various units of believers in the book of Revelation. And what I mean by that is sometimes I think it's nice to say, well, when we look at all of the believers in and outside of this time period, it's helpful to kind of put a handle or a label on them. So, for example, there are raptured saints, all believers in Jesus Christ, that are removed from the earth prior to the breaking forth of the 70th week of Daniel, this last seven years that Revelation chapter 6 through 20 really focus on. Okay, so first of all, we have to realize that the majority of believers will be removed. But during this time period in Revelation, we know that Israel certainly are going to have many believers within them. That was the woman who was protected in the wilderness by God that we read about in Revelation chapter 12, verses 14 through 16. Okay, now when we look at the Israel, the woman protected in the wilderness, I'm not claiming that every single person is a believer, but there will be many who do come to faith. A remnant, certainly, who are protected in the wilderness. But remember, in Revelation 12, 17, even though a lot of Israelites will be protected in the wilderness, the rest of the children, remember that phrase? The rest of her children will be subject to attack by the Antichrist. That is also many people in Israel, perhaps some of them believers, and they will not be protected in the wilderness, and they will be open to attack by Antichrist. So that would be another unit of believers The third unit, though, is the one we're going to be looking at today. That's 144,000. And I would say that that is a subset of the rest of the children. Okay? So think of Israel in three parts. You have those that are protected in the wilderness. It's kind of hands-off on those, comprised of believers and unbelievers. You have the rest of the children comprised of believers and unbelievers, but they're under assault. They're Israelites under assault by Antichrist. And then you have the 144,000. And each of these Israelite men is a believer, and we're going to see that they are offered as a first fruits, and we'll explain what that is later, to God during the Millennial Kingdom. All right? Now, finally, there's also evidence there, of course, are Gentile believers during the 70th week who don't take the mark of the beast. Now, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. I just want to remind you of the evidence for Gentile believers. So turn your Bibles to Revelation 7. We'll just look at verse 9. And verses 13 and 14. Again, Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9, notice John, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. So just stop there. Notice the people that he's referring to are obviously not Jews, but they're Gentiles. Okay. now, if you skip down to verse 13, it says, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, those who are clothed in white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? Now, what's the response by John? He says, I don't know. Verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So certainly these Gentile believers are those who are being killed. And it was within the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so these are the different groups of believers that you'll see in the book of Revelation, except obviously the first group that's excluded because they've already been raptured. But I hope that helps summarize the different units of believers that you see within the book. Now with that, let's begin in verse 1 where we see that Christ's people do in fact bear his name. John says this, he says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, do you one's notice at the beginning here, he says, then I looked, that's the Kai I don't, and I saw. So that tips you off that this is a new revelation, a new vision that he sees. And again, you'll see that same thing again two more times delineating the three sections within Revelation 14. Now, here the lamb is certainly the centerpiece of Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is often depicted as the Lamb throughout Scripture. Remember, in John 1, John the Baptist said, Of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the linking of Jesus to being the Lamb has to do with His sacrificial atonement. And the backdrop to the Lamb reaches all the way back to the passage In Exodus chapter 12. Now what's the significance of Exodus chapter 12? Well, Exodus chapter 12 was all about how God had saved his people from his own wrath by the Paschal or Passover lamb. So remember back in Exodus chapter 12 when God was going to save his people Israel, he does so by having them select a lamb without blemish. And they were to select that lamb without blemish on what day? on the 10th day of the month. What's very interesting is when you look to the New Testament, I believe the best time frame would indicate that Jesus, the unblemished lamb, comes into Jerusalem not just on any day, but on the 10th day of Nisan. It's a lamb selection day. So on the 14th, go back to Exodus chapter 12. On the 14th day, the people were to slay the lamb without blemish, and they're they're to take the blood and apply it to the doorposts of their home, so that they would be passed over from God's wrath. The destroying angel wouldn't kill them. Well, what day was Jesus Christ crucified? On the 14th day of Nisan. The lamb without blemish was crucified. And so if we by faith will apply the blood on the doorpost of our heart, the whole person, we also, as it were, are passed over from God's wrath. And so all of this is wrapped in to the idea of him being the lamb. Now, in Revelation, the lamb is the one who does two primary things. Jesus Christ pours out wrath, and he reveals prophecy. He is the source and the subject of all prophecy in the book of Revelation. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 5, do you remember the complaint in the throne room? No one was worthy, found worthy to break the seals, the seven seals, And who was found worthy, remember, after all the weeping? Well, it was the lamb. So the lamb was the one who revealed then, by breaking the seals, all prophecy in the book of Revelation. But all of the judgment that proceeds from the seals, the trumpets, and the bowl judgments all proceed from him. So he is the one then who ushers all prophecy and all judgment in the book of Revelation. Now here, notice it says John sees the lamb. It's obviously Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Now, the term standing here is a perfect passive, or excuse me, not a perfect passive, but a perfect tense participle. Okay, now, why is that significant? Let's do a little grammar again. The perfect tense accentuates the idea of an action that was completed in the past, but the effect is always with you in the present. Okay, so the significance of this perfect tense standing is the idea that when Jesus Christ returns, his return has everlasting consequences. It's not just, well, he came back and then he has to do some more. No, it's forevermore, he is the lamb who stands. And all those who align with Jesus Christ are those who stand forever with him. I think that that's some of the significance of what we see in this passage, that he stands forevermore, and those who are with him the same. All right, now he's standing on Mount Zion. Now, where in the world is Mount Zion? Well, we have two options. Mount Zion, of course, could be the Mount Zion in the heavenly realm that's alluded to in Hebrews chapter 12 and the book of Galatians as well. But here I believe Mount Zion is probably the earthly Mount Zion where Jerusalem resides. Okay, now why would I say that? Well, I'm going to give you some evidence here in just a moment. But remember, all the way back in Revelation 5.10 in the throne room, you had that angel say this. In Revelation 5.10, he says, You have made them, that's all believers, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign where? Upon the earth. So where are believers going to reign? Well, they're going to reign upon the earth. And that's what's accentuated in the book of Revelation is that Messiah is going to come back and he's going to bring a kingdom that will come to this earth. Now, to be fair, in Revelation 21 and 22, we see that there's going to be the doing away of the present creation, and we're going to have a new creation, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. But the focus here, I believe, is still on the earthly kingdom that Messiah will bring. Now, let me give you three points that I think prove... The earthly, the earthly Mount Zion is indeed in view. Number one, first of all, in verses 2 through 3, now we're going to come to this in two slides, but in this section, chapter 14 and verses 2 through 3, John hears singing in the heavenly realm. The reason he hears the singing in the heavenly realm, and it doesn't say he saw it, is because his vision is of that which is on earth. Okay, so he hears because he doesn't see. He sees what's going on on earth and he hears the heavenly host singing. I think that that's a tip off that the scene here that he sees is indeed the Mount Zion that is on earth. So it'd be earthly Jerusalem. Point number two, the temple measured in Revelation chapter 11. Remember there was the measuring of the temple. That certainly was the earthly temple. And remember the measuring of it was a sign that God's favor had returned to the earthly temple and therefore to his people, Israel. <laughs> and so if Revelation 11 focuses our attention on the temple in Mount Zion, I think just a few chapters later, you probably have the same focus. But the coup de grace, the, or as my brother always says, the coup de grassy, that in fact this is the earthly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is there's an expectation in both the Old Testament Fulfilled here in Revelation that Messiah is going to reign from a reestablished Jerusalem. In fact, the book of Isaiah itself, in a sense, is a contrast between the city of chaos, Babylon, and God's city, Jerusalem. What's Revelation about? Well, Revelation, in a sense, is about the same thing. Babylon is going to be thrown down and Jerusalem is going to be established. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 24, 23, and I'm going to show you some evidence from the Old Testament of this expectation that earthly Jerusalem would, in fact, be established with Yahweh, and in this case, obviously, Messiah, reigning over it. Isaiah 24, 23, we'll start there. And as you're turning to Isaiah 24, realize that this is in a section often called... The little apocalypse. Okay, now scholars call it that because you see New Testament eschatology taught in Isaiah 24 to 27. Okay, in other words, it's really clearly delineated. In fact, if you read Isaiah 26, you'll see such things as God's wrath being poured out on his enemies and the salvation of his people through resurrection, etc. So, you have that, that type of doctrine being taught here. Now, in Isaiah 24, 23, notice what it says. It says, then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. So stop there for a moment. Here, the sun and moon are being personified. And what I, a per, does everyone know what personification is? That's where you take an inanimate object and you treat it as if it's a person. Okay, you give it personality. to just simply make a point. And the point that Isaiah is making here is that the glory of a Messiah reigning in Jerusalem is so significant that it's as if the sun and the moon, as brilliant as they are and as beautiful as they are, are ashamed of themselves. That's how glorious Messiah's reign is. Well, I tell you what, I'm looking forward to that day. I like the moon and I like the sun, but I tell you what, it's going to pale in comparison to Messiah's reign and his glory. That's exciting. So the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So that's an expectation. Now, turn your Bibles to another passage. I'll just give you two, but there's many we could turn to. But turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, because that's such an important messianic passage. In particular, Psalm 2.6 we'll look at here. (laughs) In Psalm 2, remember, the nations have devised a vain thing. They take their stand against Yahweh and his anointed, against his Messiah, and they fail, don't they? And that's exactly what we see in Revelation. Antichrist and the nations take their stand against Messiah and his people, but they're going to fail. And here in Psalm 2.6, this is Yahweh's response. Psalm 2.6, Yahweh says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Brothers and sisters, that's going to be fulfilled in Revelation 19:11 through verse 21 when Messiah returns. In chapter 14 that we're looking at now, it is a proleptic look at that. In other words, it's so certain it's going to occur, John speaks as if it's already occurred. And he's doing that again for encouragement I guess he just told you about the victories of the Antichrist temporarily in Revelation 13. That's the purpose behind it. Okay, so for those reasons, I think the expectation is that this Mount Zion that Messiah is standing on is probably the earthly one. Does that make sense? Now, the focus, of course, is on the lamb here, but the 144,000 are important. (laughs) Notice, with him are 144,000. It says, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And again, this contrasts with what we saw in Revelation 13, where the unregenerate, that is, unbelievers, had the name of the beast on their forehead. Okay, so the unregenerate have their God, small g, and they're owned by him. But here, believers in Jesus are ultimately owned by him. And so this mark of the forehead really designates ownership. These are people, the 144,000, that are owned by the Messiah, they belong to Him. He is their God, and they are His people. Okay, very very exciting. Now, one thing I want to point out is I want to accentuate this term "standing" here because I think it's very significant. Let's go back to Revelation chapter six, seventeen. Remember, in Revelation six, you see the first judgments come, and it is wrath that is so bad. You lose a quarter of the earth's population. It is horrific. And so bad is it that at the end of the chapter, the unregenerate, as dense and as thick-skulled as they are, finally realize this is the wrath of God. They even get it. Revelation 6, 17, here's the unregenerate crying out. They say, the great day of their wrath, that is, God and the Lamb, has come, and who is able to stand? Does everyone see the connection? The question is, who is able to stand? Now... That question had a preliminary answer in Revelation chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, where you saw the 144,000 are able to stand. Why? Because they're sealed by God. Here's Revelation 7, 3 through 4. The angel said, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe, of the sons of Israel. These are the ones who are going to be able to stand. Now, as we get to chapter 14, you see the Messiah standing once and for all here on Mount Zion. And I think there's a fair application here in that the only way any person can ever stand before God's judgment and wrath isn't because we're some spiritual superstar, that we're some good person, but it's because we're with the, the, Lamb, He's the one who stands for us. Yeah, Lonnie. Oops, hold on. We'll get it on tape here.
1: Yeah. Okay. Th- this is during the tribulation period, right? Correct.
0: Okay. Now, the 140- although I'm sorry, let me just stop real quick. Just for clarification, the, the look here in Revelation fourteen one through five, is, the millennial kingdom. So think of Revelation 14, 1 through 5 is giving you a snapshot of what the millennial kingdom will be like simply because he showed you the victories of the beast in Revelation 13 and he wants to assure the people of God of the victory of the lamb. So you're talking
1: about the millennial kingdom? right now?
0: Exactly. That's what John's looking forward to. It's a proleptic. Look, he's speaking as if it's already occurred, even though we're not going to see it come until Revelation 20 chronologically. Okay. Okay, does that I, make I'm sense? I'm just
1: just kind of curious. Um, <clears throat> you said that there'll be a name written on the foreheads of, this is 100, the 144,000. Yeah. And I'm thinking of during the tribulation period when this 144,000 are evangelizing. Sure. And then I was wondering, well, okay, I I read the books uh, Left Behind. Okay. And they get into even the tribulation saints had uh, the name written on their foreheads, but only other Christians could see it, I guess is what they were saying, if I remember right. I don't know what, uh, did anybody else read that?
0: Yeah, I think that, Lonnie, I would just say that's some artistic license there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Yep. Some ar- yeah, it's probably artistic well, it license.
1: Well, was, it wasn't in a movie. It was uh, in, in the books. Oh, sure.
0: The- <clears throat> yeah, well, good question. I, I think it's probably some artistic license. In fact, okay. we're not even quite sure what the 144,000 do. It's not explicitly stated. But it it wouldn't surprise me that they are doing evangelism. I think that's a fair uh, surmising of what they're doing. But, again, we're not explicitly told. Yeah, Yeah. very good. Yeah. So I hope that's clear, though. um, Oh, yeah, Bob.
2: Oh. Oh, we got another. Another way
0: of saying that, the technical term is proleptic.
2: And that means you're speaking of something in the present as if it were already true. But it's certain, but he had his future. Yeah. Another way of saying that, I, I appreciated some of the scholars when I was teaching through Luke. In Luke 1, you have proleptic statements, Luke 1 and 2. Yeah. God right. has visited salvation. And, right. Well, Messiah was just a little baby being born. Right. So another way to say it is previews. Yeah. Okay. Reviews and previews. Reviews remind us of what happened.
0: Revelation 12 was that, yes. Yeah,
2: yep. and previews are telling us what will happen, but because God decreed it, it can be said, it's certain, Absolutely. though it's yet future. Amen. And so, and for example, John obviously is using it, but Luke Acts is full of reviews and previews. Yeah. And it's a great way the to learn,
0: and we just need to know that's what's going on, and Absolutely. we'll understand the Bible amen well said thank you yeah does that, does that make sense so Revelation 14 1 through 5 is a preview just like Bob said our proleptive statement of the millennial kingdom yeah David
3: uh, yes I was just wondering uh, the Christians the believers of course that aren't the 144,000 will have the seal but we won't have the kind of same mark that the 144,000 will have right
0: yeah, you know, that may be a fair inference. Um, I don't think we can exclude it. Um, it may be because it's something that's not stated. Yeah. But I don't think that that's denoting that we're somehow second-class citizens or any other believer. Oh well, no,
3: I didn't say that. No,
0: I, and I know, I, I, but <laughs> I've thought it myself. But what it, what's very interesting, and this will kind of help, I think, with 144,000, is they're going to be called later first fruits. Now, I, well, let me just put this on the table right here because you'll see it come up in this passage. But the idea of first fruits, remember where that comes from. In the book of Leviticus, on the 16th day of Nisan, the Israelites were to wave a wave offering called the first fruits. Okay, now let's explain what that is. This wave offering had to do with the fact that the Israelites were granted the first portion of their harvest, but they just had a little bit. So what they were to do was to do this wave offering before the Lord, saying, Lord, we have this much grain. It's very little, but because you're the life-giving God who has promised us life, we can trust you for the rest of the harvest well isn't it interesting that Jesus is raised from the dead on that day and Paul himself calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 the first fruits of the resurrection so Jesus then is like the wave offering we have this much we have Jesus the first part of the harvest but because God is a life-giving God we can trust him for the rest of us the rest of the harvest will one day come you get the imagery Well, here the 144,000 are also called the first fruits. And the idea is simply that they're a down payment promising that there's a greater harvest to come. That is, there's many other people, Jews and Gentiles, who belong to God as well. So, yeah, thanks for the question, and I wish I could answer it uh, very succinctly, whether or not we have marks and um, et cetera, but I, I don't know if we can always know. Yeah. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, okay, sure, thank you. All right, now, okay, so any more questions before we move on? I want to show you kind of a summary of the contrast that I see between Revelation 13 and 14, and I think this will clarify why John is doing this here. In Revelation 13, 1 through 8, versus what we're seeing here in Revelation 14, 1 through 5. First of all, remember in Revelation 13, 1 through 8, the beast, that's the Antichrist, he stood on the sand of the sea, Now, think about right there, what did Jesus say about those who build their homes on the sand, right? Not too good. Well, isn't it interesting, the lamb stands on the rock of Zion. So you see a slight contrast there, one standing on the sand of the sea, the other one standing on the rock of Zion. You see a contrast, obviously, between the wild beast, the Greek term therion, usually denotes a beast that is ravenous, that's cunning, that's cruel, that's out for blood, But notice Jesus isn't out for blood. He's known as the lamb who shed his blood. Notice the opposite nature of the two. The beast kills to build his kingdom. The lamb built his kingdom by dying and being raised from the dead. Now, as I say that, the lamb is no cream puff, is he? He's the one who's pouring out all these judgments. He's the one who's going to rule and reign, and he's going to subject all of his enemies under his feet. But the lamb is the one who reigns with his people in a merciful way, in a righteous way, not in a capriciously angry way. Revelation 13, 1 through 8, we saw the name of the beast is on the forehead of the unregenerate. Notice here, Revelation 14, 1 through 5, the name of Christ and of God is on the the forehead of his people, at least the 144,000. Okay, so a very good contrast. Now, let me show you a quote from Robert Thomas, wonderful scholar, highly recommend his commentary. He has a two-volume set put out by Moody Press. It's, I think, it's simply entitled, I don't know what his commentary is entitled, <laughs> the Reve- Commentary on Revelation, something uh, fairly apropos like that, but it's a two-volume set put out by Moody, Robert Thomas. Listen to what he says about this passage. Quote, he says, The whole chapter, 14, is proleptic, Again, think about about what Bob said. That means it's a preview. So certain is this future event, it's spoken as if it's already occurred. So, So he says the whole chapter 14 is proleptic. As a summary of the millennium, the first five verses feature the lamb in place of the beast, the lamb's followers with his and the father's seal in place of the beast, followers with the mark of the beast. So you see the contrast. Thomas sees that as well. Okay, so these are the contrasts that I think we're intended to see. And again, that's why John places it here. Even though we saw victories by the beast, the lamb is going to conquer. Who should you and I line up ourselves with? (laughs) The lamb, the lamb by faith in Jesus Christ. All right. All right. Now we see the 144,000 are going to learn what I like to call the Song of Zion. Verses two through three. It says, and I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. First thing I want to point out here is notice in these boxes the like, hosts in the Greek. You see it three times. These are similes. So again, that tips us off that what John is hearing isn't water. It's not thunder and it's not harps, but it's like that. And he's hearing this from this angelic chorus. Now, again, let me reiterate. John saw in his vision, remember in verse 1 of Revelation 14, he saw the lamb standing where? On Mount Zion with 144,000. But here he is hearing the angelic host singing. That is a tip-off that the vision in which John sees is on earth. Otherwise, he would see the heavenly chorus, and he would hear what's going on on earth. Are you with me? And so that's further evidence that Mount Zion, that he's referring to in fourteen one Revelation 14.1, is, of course, the earthly Jerusalem. Okay? So that's a quick catch. Yeah, Eric.
1: This might be just something I just thought of. Uh, can we infer, <laughs> this is really an honest question. I, I'm, I'm sort of looking at this and, and seeing that when the millennial kingdom comes, you know, yeah. and we will be there, we will be hearing from heaven. And, and, and John is just trying as best he can to describe the beauty of this music. See, I think God loves music. <laughs> yeah, amen. And, uh, and, but it's going to be just an amazingly wonderful thing is what yeah. I'm getting from this.
0: Yeah, amen. You know, I, I think you're right to infer that. And here, Here's why. And I'll show you on the next slide. I'm going to do a little summary on the angels and the gospel. What's very interesting is remember, uh, Bob just mentioned Luke. Remember Luke 2 with the, the narrative where you have Jesus' uh, birth announcement to the shepherds? Remember, you have a, a chorus of angels, don't you? So in a sense, at his first advent, you have this heavenly host singing the glories of God. And here you, at this second advent, you have it as well. And so I think that that's a fair inference. In fact, it's being stated right here. And this is certainly a proleptic scene of the millennial kingdom. So I think it's a very fair inference. Yeah. And how beautiful is that? Now, you, you raise an interesting point, Eric. Notice when he says that these are the sound of waters, etc. How do we know that this is the angelic host that are singing? The reason we know is because earlier in Revelation, when this sound of many waters was heard in Revelation five eleven, again in 7, 11 through 12, and again later in Revelation 19, 6, the angels do sing. So that right there should tell us that these are probably angels that he is hearing as well. Now, think about, we have Mount Zion on earth, and you have the heavenly hosts that are singing. But remember, according to the New Testament, there's also a Mount Zion counterpart in the heavenly realm, okay? So think of it this way. You have a Mount Zion on earth in Jerusalem. Messiah is going to reign over it for a 1,000 years. But meanwhile, there's a Mount Zion counterpart in the heavenly realm in the new Jerusalem. When the eternal states come, that is, the new heavens and the new earth, they meld into one. That is, I shouldn't say they meld the old Jerusalem's gotten rid of, the new Jerusalem comes down in the new creation. But turn your Bibles real quick. Let me just show you a point. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12.22. Hebrews 12.22, and this will show you that indeed there is a heavenly counterpart to the earthly Mount Zion. Hebrews 12.22, and by the way, the writer of Hebrews here is making the point that if you come to faith in Messiah, you're registered in the heavenly Mount Zion, aren't you? In the, in the new heavenly Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, notice he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels. So stop there. Let's just consider this for a moment. Here John sees a vision, certainly I think of the earthly Mount Zion, but the myriads of angels from heaven are singing from the heavenly Mount Zion. You see that? Isn't that beautiful? And so you see them kind of come together here in this vision. Yeah, Brian, you got
3: something? <clears throat> I remember a long time ago we had discussed the uh, Song of Moses. And would there? I believe there's a connection between the Song of Moses
0: and what we're seeing here. Could you address that, please? Absolutely. Uh, the, Moses and the Israelites sing that beautiful song about the mighty hand of God delivering them from their, their Egyptian captors in the exodus. Well, the greater exodus is happening here. This is a second exodus. That's why many of the plagues look like the plagues that happened during the exodus account. So this is the grand exodus, okay? And certainly we see in Revelation chapter 15 that you have saints in heaven who are going to be singing a song as well. And it's very much like the song of Moses that Brian's alluding to. So think of Exodus 15. Moses sings the song of Moses Uh, with the people celebrating God's redemption. Revelation 15, they sing it again because of the great exodus God is bringing his people ultimately to the eternal promised land. Yeah, David. Well,
3: I was just wondering, I hadn't thought of this before, but these like the sound of harpist, then that maybe could really be angels that are singing?
0: Exactly. I think all of these similes... Oh. John is trying to describe there it's like the sounds of waters it's like the thunder it's like the harpist playing it's all him describing this beautiful melodious sound that he's hearing from the heavenly realm so yeah i think it all ties into the angelic beings and how beautiful that will be it'll be astonishing i'm sure yeah it'll be wonderful oops anybody else have anything yeah bob if you want to look at luke
2: Luke, um, what chapter am I in here? Luke 1, starting with 68. Remember when Zechariah couldn't talk? Mm. Then all of a sudden he could? Yeah. And he prophesied? This really illustrates, it's very much like Revelation, yeah. that blended uh, is the past, then perfect tense, sometimes it's called a prophetic perfect, Yeah. and then yeah. future. And this is where reviews and previews happen. Revelations a lot the same. Because yeah. Zechariah <coughs> says, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Well, it hasn't really happened yet. right? right. But it's certain because it's been <coughs> decreed and now it's coming into history. He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by his holy prophets in ancient times, there's the past, looking at, you wow, know, reviews. There we go. Yep. Hey, salvation from our enemies, from the clutches of those who hate us. He's dealt mercifully with our fathers, remembered his holy covenant. He swore, going back to our to father Abraham, he has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from the enemies. Well, you can read on. It's going back and forth. Wow between the Old Testament, what God did, what he is doing, what he will do, and all these tenses are blended. Wow. And that's what Dr. Tannehill called reviews and previews. Wow! And you find that a lot in the Bible, because when God says something, God cannot lie. Amen. And if he says something about the future, such as the millennial kingdom then it's certain, right? even
0: though it hasn't happened yet. And so you have that, yeah. what we call proleptic. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Great illustration. Yeah, and you're right, God cannot lie. Now, hey, one thing before we move off this slide, I want to point out, that notice the 144,000 are learning the song. They're not the singers. And so we have to see that distinction in this passage. Who are the singers? The angelic chorus. But the 144,000 are those who can, are going to learn the song. Okay, so that helps you realize the 144,000 are singing this, the angelic host are. Now, notice the 144,000 are also described as those who are purchased from the earth. That term purchased is significant. It comes from the perfect tense again of agorazo. Agorazo is a verb that has to do oftentimes in the ancient world with purchasing slaves from the marketplace. So think about all of us as believers were at one time slaves to sin Satan and death. And what Christ did through his blood, the lamb, is he purchases us out of that. The perfect tense here accentuates that, again, it's a once and for all kind of thing. He purchased us, completed the action in the past, but it always has lasting ramifications and forevermore is really the idea. Okay? The 144,000 have been purchased, just like all of us, by the blood of the lamb. Now, the angels, think about it. They sing this song here, when we get to Revelation 14:6, not only are the angels singing these songs, but an angel is going to be used to proclaim the gospel. And so there is a wonderful relationship between the angels and the gospel that we see in Scripture. And I want to talk about that for just a moment. In the scriptures, we see that the angels, their eternal destiny has already been fixed. So they are not themselves purchased by the blood of the lamb. But as volitional beings, they are interested in the gospel. They, the, the good angels give glory to God for the gospel, and they are used as instruments for the gospel. And so I want to talk about the relationship between angels and the gospel. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And I just want to show you how angels interact with God's salvific plan. And we'll just kind of do a snapshot and relate that to Revelation. So again, Luke 2, 13 through 14. Here I'm going to be showing you the narrative in which Jesus comes through the virgin birth, and you're going to see this announcement made to the shepherds. Luke 2, 13 through 14. Here the shepherds are out in the fields. And it says, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God, In the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So here you see an angelic chorus singing, or at least saying the praises of God. What's very interesting is you know, the term euangelion is the term for evangelical, it's the term for gospel. And I always think it's very interesting that in the ancient world, in Rome, they had an euangelion. They would use that term as well, but to them, the good news that they celebrated in Rome and was forced through many people, or too many people throughout the Roman Empire, was that they had to celebrate the birth of the Roman Emperor. The good news to the Romans was the birth of their Caesar, because he was considered a god. And so I want you to think about when you're a Roman citizen, on the birthday of the Caesar, it was compulsory to sing choruses and songs to this king. But out in the fields, there are no choruses to sing to the true king, the true God that's coming into the world. And so God uses his angelic beings to sing praises and that's the true euangelion. The true good news is not the birth of the Roman emperor. What God is showing us here in Luke 2, the true good news is the birth of his son. He's the true king of the world, not the Caesar over Rome. And so the choruses of angels here more than likely we're singing then. Uh, turn your Bibles ahead to Luke 15:7. Luke 15:7, you'll see more interaction with angels in the gospel. Luke 15:7 here Jesus says, well, I'll give you a moment to turn to it. Luke 15:7. Jesus says, "I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven." Over one sinner who repents, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So notice there's joy in heaven over the repentance of people who are unregenerate, turning to faith. And I would think that that joy extends even to the angelic realm. Now, turn your Bibles again. We'll just do a purview Ephesians 3 8 through 10. I'm going to show you in Ephesians 3 8 through 10 that God desires to glorify Himself through His gospel even among the angels. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. Now, in Ephesians 3, remember Paul here, as you're turning to it, Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, Paul's talking about how the apostles and prophets were given by God the ability to reveal mysteries. And one of the mysteries, of course, that was concealed was the salvation of the Messiah in the inclusion of the Gentiles. It says, To me, the very least of all the saints, Paul says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Purpose statement, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So notice there's a proclamation of God's glory through the church because of the gospel, and the proclamation of his glory is to the angelic realm. Okay, so the angels do in fact see these magnificent things and they do praise God for it. Uh, turn your Bibles again to 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. Here Paul says, For I think God has ex- exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now, the only reason I'm pointing this out is it's interesting that all of the things that God does is a spectacle to the angels. The angels are looking in on these things. That's, that'll be the last verse that I show you. In fact, turn your Bibles again, First Timothy three sixteen, and then I'll show you one on the screen, and we'll conclude. First Timothy three sixteen. Here was probably a confession that was originally like a song or perhaps a, um, what am I trying to say, a creed that was given in the early church? 1 Timothy 3.16. Notice Paul says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, this is Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory it's significant enough to paul that the angels look in on these things that he mentions that doesn't he now that reminds me of another passage that we see in first peter 1 10 through 12 and this will show you again a relationship with the angels in the gospel first peter 1 10 through 12 it says as to this salvation that's the salvation that god gives us in christ the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, stop there in verse 11. Notice Peter says that the prophets of old were talking about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Peter always didn't get that message correct, did he? Think back to Caesarea Philippi. I'm thinking of Matthew 16, where Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And Peter speaks on behalf of the 12. He says, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the first confession on behalf of the 12. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, way to go, Peter. You are so smart. He says, blessed are you, Simon bar for this was not revealed to you by flesh but by my Father in heaven. Then Jesus proceeded to tell him that he had to go to the cross and how he's going to be betrayed. He'd suffer on behalf of us all, all believers, but then he'd be raised again. What's Peter's response? Exactly, no, Lord. You're not going to go suffer. You're not going to suffer. Doesn't the, the Bible, the Old Testament, say that you reign in glory? You see, he doesn't have his theology right, does he? To Peter there, it's all glory all the time. Now, fast-forward to him writing Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. After Pentecost, Peter now he has his theology right. Now he realizes that the prophets all the while in the Old Testament were saying, no, it was necessary for the sufferings of the Christ first, then the glories were to follow. Aha, Peter's got his theology right. He's got his eschatology down. Okay, now, that's just a quick aside, but let's keep going. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that is the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things concerning the gospel, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Brothers and sisters, the angels are involved in the proclamation of the gospel, Revelation 14, 6. They long to look in the gospel. They're used as messengers by God. They give glory to God But interestingly enough, they're not saved by the gospel. You and I are. But even the angels who are going to be singing his praises give glory to God all because of the gospel. And I think that that's the relationship between the angels and the gospel. They're not saved by it, but they certainly are interested in it. And they're used even by God for the proclamation of it that is the gospel. Okay? So that's the relationship that I see in the scriptures. Now, with that, let's keep moving. We only got 10 minutes. Let's see if we can get through this. Wouldn't that be something? That'd be a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> Blameless 144,000. Verses 4 through 5, it says, These are the ones, John says, who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste." These are the ones who followed the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, dear ones, we have to do some heavy lifting, heavy interpretation here. This is a difficult section. Now, here's why. Notice regarding the 144,000, John says, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women. Okay, now stop there. He goes on to say they have kept themselves chaste. Now, the term chaste, there, parthenos, is a noun that's typically used or an adjective for being a virgin. And so the idea here is it seems to portray the idea that these 144,000 have never had any relations with, with women. Okay? Now, some try to mute this by saying that the term defiled, does everyone see that? "maluno" in the Greek? Do you see in the underlying portion, defiled? Some will say that John normally uses that in Revelation to refer to spiritual harlotry, spiritual idolatry. And it's certainly true. However... Notice, these have not been defiled with women. Meta, gune. Okay, gune is the term for women in Greek. So, you can't get around the fact that he's talking about women. Now, here's the rub on this. Nowhere in the New Testament are relations with women in the confines of marriage ever prohibited. In fact, very interestingly, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul makes it very clear that in the last days there would be doctrines of demons being taught. And notice what he describes as one of these doctrines of demons. 1 Peter 4, 2 through 3. He says, this is Paul, By means of the hypocrisy of liars, these are the false teachers, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared In by those who believe and know the truth. Notice one of the doctrines of demons is not only telling people they have to abstain from certain foods, foods which Christ declared to be clean, Mark 7, but also those who forbid marriage. So now we have to say, wait a minute. In Revelation 14, 4, is John saying that these men are defiled or would have been defiled if they would have been married? Isn't that not a doctrine of demon? as Paul alludes to in 1 Timothy 4. Does everyone see kind of the rub? And I don't think you can get away by just saying, well, the defilement here, again, is a spiritual one. It has to do with spiritual adultery, not physical adultery, because it's with women. He makes that very clear. So here's the way out of this, uh, what I would say, cutting the Gordian knot. This is what it involves. Nowhere in the New Testament, including here, I think... I don't think the New Testament ever says that marriage is something that's wrong. It's never sinful. However, in the last days, and we're in the last days now, but in the 70th week of Daniel, it seems to be that these 144,000 have a necessity to be chaste, having no relations with women, not because they're trying to earn brownie points with God or become more holy, but simply because of the task at hand. So bleak and so dire is the world's situation, that they are completely engrossed in the matters of God. Now, let me give you some evidence of that. Who had the passage Matthew 19, 11 through 12? Noel did. Can we get the microphone to Noel? Does anyone have a mic? Oh, I'm sorry, Eric. If you can read Matthew nineteen eleven through 12, and I think Jesus' words kind of shed some light on this.
3: Matthew nineteen eleven 11 through 12. But he said to them, not all men accept this statement.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. Back up and um, cite the question that the disciples asked. Just back up a little bit and we'll get more context. Ten. Yeah, try ten.
3: The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, is it better not to marry?
0: That's the question. Is it better not to marry? Now listen to Jesus' response.
3: But he said to them, "Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are Enochs who, are, who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are Enochs who were made Enochs by men, and there are also Enochs who made themselves Enochs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this. Let him accept it.
0: There you go. So notice Jesus doesn't say that marriage is sinful, and he does say that only certain people have been given the ability to remain celibate in that way. And if so, he says they do it for the sake of the kingdom. Now, what's interesting is the Apostle Paul builds on that in First Corinthians seven, which I'm going to show you. Um yeah, Bill. Oh, I just
3: want want to make a quick comment forbidding marriage, I think, of the Catholic priesthood. Exactly.
0: Right, and I would say that's a false binding. So, exactly right. Um, so what Bill is mentioning is that the Roman Catholic Church says that all of their priests cannot engage in marriage. They can't be married. Okay, I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, how did that work out? Not too good, the last I've seen in the newspapers, right? But here, here's their re- rebuttal. If you go after them on that, they will say, well, nowhere do we command all people that they have to abstain from marriage. The priests are simply taking upon themselves that role willingly. And doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 19:11 through 12, that to those who can accept it, let them accept it? That would be the rebuttal. But here's my response. When you read about those who teach in the church, which certainly the priest has the role of, there, there's three terms in the New Testament that are all used interchangeably. Pres episcopas, episkopos, and the poiamet. They're all pastors and elders. All elders are pastors. All pastors are elders. And they do teaching in the church. And what's very interesting is one of the criteria in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 for the teachers who are elders in the church is they have to be a one-woman man, meaning that they have to be a husband of one wife. Well, certainly then Paul is not limiting them and saying that you can't marry at all. So how can the Catholic Church say you can't as a teacher and elder in the church, because that's what their priests function as, you can't marry at all, when the Apostle Paul says, well, yes, you can. You just have to be a man of one woman. That, to me, is the response back. It's not the other. It's not to say, well, they just prohibit everyone from being married. They don't. What they're doing is they're putting an unnecessary limitation on those who teach in the church that the Apostle Paul himself didn't. And that's the appropriate response, I think, to the Catholic Church.
3: Yes. And let's not forget the other part of the uh, verse there, uh, the foods. Uh, You see the ridiculous practice of giving things up for Lent, don't eat this on Fridays, uh, all the way to the Jewish religion, who uh, keeping kosher, not
0: mixing the milk with the meat, all these things that uh, God never forbade, and they're just making it up. Exactly. In Mark chapter seven, Jesus declares all foods clean. Now, to be fair, when we get to Romans 14, we're going to see that there is liberty. If someone wants to refrain from certain food or certain day or honor certain day and certain food, what have you, they have that liberty. The problem comes though when they make the claim, thus saith the Lord. And so if they make that claim on you, you're not to listen to them. You're not to let them judge you, as Bob and I were just teaching in Colossians 2. Let no one judge you with respect to new moon festivals, Sabbath days, uh, foods, etc. Yeah, well I mean said. Yeah, exactly. I have a seafood diet. I see it. I eat it. I know. I'm, I'm the same way. Okay. Okay. Now, let's see if we can, well, you know, we're pretty much out of time, aren't we? Um, real quick, let's just turn to 1 Corinthians 7, 28 through 31, and I'll try to resolve this is kind of a persnickety issue. And I'll, th- I'll show you what I think the New Testament teaches. First Corinthians... Uh, actually, 1 Corinthians 7, will start in verse 25. First Corinthians 7, verse 25. Notice Paul says, Now concerning... That's the peri-day. So he's addressing now the issues with virgins. Now concerning virgins. I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Verse 26, it says, I think then that this is good, the idea of being a virgin, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. So don't be divorced if you're married. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. If you're unmarried, don't seek one. Just remain as you are. That's his point. Now, verse 28, notice he says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. Does everyone see that? Marriage is not sin in the New Testament. Revelation 14.4 is not teaching that. But notice what he goes on to say. In other words, Revelation 14.4 is not in contradiction to that. Notice Paul goes on to say, and he says, And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now, stop there. We all know that when you become married, I gotta, my wife isn't here. I know I can talk big, right? There are more problems that you have. You have more on your plate, right? Okay, you just have more on your plate. You have kids, you have all the things that go with it. (laughs) But notice what happens. (laughs) I'll be careful about Verse 29, he says, But this I say, brethren, the time, does everyone see that in verse 29? The time, kairos, has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as those who have none. So stop there. He says the time has been shortened. There's two terms for time in the Greek New Testament chronos, which is chronological time, one minute after the other. Kairos, which is used here in 1 Corinthians 7, is the significant time. And the time that he's referring to is the epoch of time that will occur when Messiah comes back. That is his parousia. That's what Revelation's all about. So what he says here is that that time has been shortened. Why was it shortened? Because the Messiah came at his first advent. So if the Messiah came in at his first advent, the time for his second advent has been shortened. Therefore, Paul advocates, look, if you can remain a virgin, then so do so for the sake of the kingdom. He's really making the same argument Jesus did. If you can accept that, accept it. But not all can. It's not sinful to marry. Now, That time, Kairos, that had been shortened, in the book of Revelation, it's there. It's there. We're reading in Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 22 all about the parousia of the Son of Man. It's not a one-day event, the coming of Christ. It's a multiple-day event. It's the last seven years. And it's at hand. And so horrific is it, and so necessary is it for men to be dedicated to the things of God, that for the 144,000 it was a blessing for them to remain chaste. I think that that's the idea here. So again, we don't want to come away with the idea that it's sinful to marry. It is not. That's a doctrine of demons. But for these men living in the 70th week of Daniel, this is something that was necessary for their godliness and to serve the Lord. Okay, I think that that's what we can affirm. Yeah, Levon. And, I mean, at, at this time, there was so much too. Well said. And, um, and they were expecting that Jesus would come back any time. Amen. It's always been an imminent proposition. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 7 shows that to Paul, the parousia of the Son of Man was imminent. You're exactly right. Yep. Very good. So with that, we'll finish more of this up in a, in a couple weeks when we come back to it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, in fact, are the coming king who will rule forever, that the Antichrist, his forces in Babylon will all be thrown down. We long for that day where your glory exceeds even the moon and the sun and will reign with you in this new kingdom. I pray for perseverance, my brothers and sisters. I pray for Bob in the sermon. Help us, Lord, have ears to hear what he has to say through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.